Uh, the last few weeks, off and on, we've been going through our One Thing series, and we've talked about, firstly, one thing I seek from Psalm 27. One thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. One thing I seek, which is to be with God. That's what I seek, ultimately. One thing you lack, which is a potentially a man that runs up to Jesus, he lacked a truly surrendered spirit. He had a religious spirit, you could say, but not a surrendered one. One thing is needed, Mary and Martha we talked about. And sometimes the good gets in the way of what's best. Martha was doing good things, Mary chose what is better. One thing's needed, that best thing. Uh, one thing I know, the man born blind in John chapter 9, what, what was the one thing he knew? He knew that Jesus had transformed his life, and he could tell you all about it. And today we come to the one thing I do, and in some ways, although I don't know that scripture specifically was designed to lead up to this, it seems to me that all these things lead up to one thing I do. So because of all these other things, therefore this. Because God is all that I really seek, because I have a surrendered spirit, because I've chosen what is best, because I really know that Jesus has transformed my life, then I have ambition to tell others to do things for God. Then I have motivation to, to work for God and to seek him, which we'll talk more about here today. But before we get into that, I think it'd be good to have our passage read. So. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing, Jesus, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost in all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the death, from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Thank you very much. Excellent reading. One thing I do, one thing I do, pressing on. Uh, if you could give one thing for Liz Trust to do, I bet she's got a big inbox, right? What would be one thing you wanted to do? If there was one, only one, if she could only do one thing in her, in her term of office, what would that one thing be? Pay Danny's gas bill specifically. <laughs> Nobody else is. Nobody else is. Okay, Danny, as long as he gets his gas bill paid. One thing, yeah? Climate change. Climate change issues. Deal with that seriously. Okay. Yeah? Tax the BP and all the other big people. Tax the big people. The and give bill the money. Okay. <laughs> oh, 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 us. Okay, us. All of us. Excellent. Conversely, resign. Resign. <laughs> 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 One thing I do, reside. Yeah, okay. Any others? It <laughs> must be, I mean, I don't know, right? I'm not a politician, and thank the Lord for that. But uh, how do you decide? I mean, how, how big is that inbox? 
just one thing? It must be so, uh, so difficult, one thing. Or actually even Charles, I mean, King Charles III now. I mean, one thing, what's the one thing? I mean, he must have a big list of things to do, organize and, and get involved in. I, I don't know. How do you choose this? And and because I'm sure we're all thinking about the, how to bring down our energy uh, costs, right? How to get the bills down, my goodness. And what's the one thing that we could do that would make a difference to the cost of our household energy bills. You know, that's one thing. I've been stressing my wife out about this because I have to confess I've become a little bit obsessed. Uh, we've been looking into uh, various ways to uh, save uh, electricity or gas. We've been looking into solar panels. We got a, uh, a quote. We got some people around to do a survey, see if we can do that, put in a battery and some solar panels. We've been looking into uh, insulated cladding for the outside of the house. Uh, we've been looking into heat pumps. Um, that little fan at the bottom right there, you could put, we've got a wood burning, a wood burner, and if you put a fan on top, it propels the hot air more around the rest of the house, so it's not just in one room, and is it worth getting an electrically powered one? Or can you just use the convection heat, which some of them work from? Very clever, they have this, there's a way that they converts the, uh, the, the convection into electricity that powers the fan, you can get different, pa different uh, power to the powered fans, and, and you've got to balance out the uh, this, that, and the other, and, um, and saving, I, don't, I mean, uh, Poor Penny, she's getting a bit stressed out about this. Uh, as it, let's just turn the heating down. I think that's probably simpler. And put on a jumper. Uh, so, you know, that's... My, my wife likes the simple solutions. Uh, I like the technology. So... Uh, <laughs> but if there was one thing, you know, what's the one thing that makes all the difference? And in our lives, so much of whether we end life... I mean, don't want to think about death too much, but it's in the air, you know, with what's happening recently. When we get to the end of our life, what we say that we, we, we were focused on, we were concentrating on, and we were involved in the one thing that mattered. Can we, I want to end my life that way. I mean, I know it's not easy to, it's easy to say that. But times like this might be times to help us to reflect on whether we're engaged in that one thing that, that really, really matters. And so I'm hoping we can take some inspiration from the Apostle Paul here in Philippians chapter 3. And uh, let's uh, think about his context and his situation for what he wrote that we had read just now. So what's going on in Paul's life at this time? Um, Paul, first of all, is in prison. Um, that makes it a little tricky uh, in life to get done things, doesn't it? You know, if you're stuck in prison, especially a first century prison. He's in prison, and there are troublemaking Christians around, creating trouble for him. Earlier in the book of Philippians, he talks about the fact that some people are preaching the gospel, but they're preaching it in such a way as to stir up trouble for him. So it's one thing to, for people in the world to be uh, opposed to you, but what about fellow brothers and sisters who are not only causing you problems, but are deliberately doing so to give you a hard time, and you're in prison because of the gospel? That's a tough spot to be in, isn't it? That's his situation. People in Philippi, the Christians in the church there, are frightened. They're frightened by his predicament. Oh, if Paul's in prison, and he's the apostle, and God is with him, who's to say that won't happen to us? So they're frightened. Um, that's why Paul emphasizes in the, in the book, Peace in Christ. We haven't got time to look at that theme today, but it's a thread through the book of Philippians. Peace in Christ. He's also got some people in the church there grumbling. They're grumbling against each other. They're arguing with each other. He asks for uh, them to be at peace. He even names in chapter 4, Euodia and Sitaiki, to be of the same mind. He's saying, stop grumbling, stop arguing, get united, be at peace. And he names them. Can you imagine that? It's like me saying, oi, you two have been arguing. And, and I won't name any names because I'm sure none of us will do that. Uh, but it'd be like naming people here. I, that's pretty intense, isn't it? 
um, would go against a lot of our, uh, our uh, ethics, perhaps, or, or, or whatever. But it, there's a lot going on in this congregation. And, and there's false teachers. There's people coming into the church just saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you got baptized into Christ, but that's not enough. You've got to be circumcised, and you've got to keep the Sabbath, and you've got to keep the kosher laws, and you've got to follow the law of Moses, and uh, here is your list. It would be like the Watford Word, which I forgot today. Sorry, it's at home. But imagine I brought the Watford Word, and on it I'd written, okay, fine, up till now we've been good Christians, thinking we were doing the right thing, but I have discovered that we need to start, we need to stop eating pork, we need to start keeping the Sabbath, all the men here need to get circumcised, and, you know, there's a list on this Watford Word. Right, don't come back next week until you've done all these 55 things. It's a bit, that's what kind of what's going on in this church. And Paul writes this letter from prison, which we can't do justice to the whole letter now, but we will try and do justice to this one part of it, where he talks about that one thing I do. The one thing, just that one thing I do. So first of all, how does he consider himself? It's an interesting thing as you read Paul's letters to ask yourself what it reveals about the way that he thought about himself. He's an impressive man in some ways. He's an apostle. He saw Jesus Christ. He has been very busy planting churches, uh, training younger leaders, appointing and training elders, traveling to lands where he's been persecuted, uh, whipped, beaten, left for dead, imprisoned. He's seen the Holy Spirit do miraculous things. I mean, this is somebody with an impressive resume you could say and at the beginning earlier on in the chapter he talks about the fact that um, according to Judaism he was the best of the best and he's not really boasting he was amongst the best of the best in Judaism he was a uh, circumcised on the eighth day it's like a badge it's like saying I'm an eighth day uh, member of the kingdom of God you know I was circumcised on the correct day some of you people out there, you got back to the circumcised on the wrong day. I'm an eighth day Jew. On the eighth day, circumcised of the people of Israel, in other words, born into Judaism, um, Jewish parents, the tribe of Benjamin, which was regarded as the premier tribe of the time. There's a whole list of things I could tell you about. I haven't got time. But if you were of the tribe of Benjamin, which is David's tribe, ooh, wow, that's, that's serious, you know? So you are at the top here. Uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, Hebrew is his native language, not just Greek. He speaks Greek, but he does speak Hebrew. That's his language. That's his culture. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, not just a priest, not just a Sadducee or somebody else. Pharisees were top dogs. They're the most law-abiding of all law-abiding Jews. And as for zeal, persecuting the church. Uh, he was enraged and he was out there for God doing what he thought was right. As for the uh, righteousness based on the law, faultless. Who of us could say that? How's your obedience to Christ? Faultless. We might need to have a chat about pride, mightn't we? But you know, Paul's able to write this and know that people wouldn't contradict him. It shows us who he was in the eyes of Judaism and who he used to be in his own eyes. The best of the best. And then he says, from verse 7 on, I now consider it loss for the sake of Christ. Everything is a loss because of knowing him. For his sake, I've lost all things. They are garbage that I may gain Christ and, uh, and, and become like him. I think uh, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. For his sake, I've lost all things. Consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. 
None of that impressive stuff that stood him in good stead amongst his family, his neighborhood, his culture, his religion. None of that means anything. It's garbage. And that word can mean dung, muck, excrement, food gone bad, scraps left after a meal, refuse, trash. It can also be used to describe a pitiful and horrible thing, like a half-eaten corpse, or filth, such as lumps of manure. It seems to me Paul was clear. What he considered to be his gains, now he considers to be rubbish, garbage, than any of these things. There's been a transformation for him. His priorities have been utterly transformed. He's not just changed one or two things to be a follower of Christ. He has transformed. He is not the same person that he was. He doesn't just have different beliefs or different morals or different behaviors or go to a different church building. He is transformed. And this is important because it's connected with the one thing I do. Because the one thing I do, and we'll come on to this in a moment, is because of the one thing that, because of everything has changed, then the one thing I do has indeed also changed. Paul is not better than he was. He's transformed. In Romans 6, a little small on the screen, but very significant this passage. Uh, one of my favorite passages describing the former and, and the, and the uh, before and after picture of what it means to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, and the confidence that comes with it. What shall we say then, says Paul again, shall we go on sinning? Shall we carry on with our old life? No, by no means. Those who have died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who are baptized, that's the word immersed, baptizo, all of us baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. And we were therefore buried with him. And this with Christ, this with him thing is very important in Philippians, but also for everything, this is what it meant for, for Paul, everything was about being with Christ and in Christ. We've been buried uh, with him. And uh, as we were, we were baptized into Christ, we were baptized into his death, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life, a whole new life, not a better life, a new life. If we have been united with him in a death like his, through that baptism. We will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like him, his, as we come out of that baptism. For we know that our old self was crucified. In other words, it's dead, with him. Not crucified by us, but with Christ. So that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. We have a different master now. We have a whole different transformed way of life with different people. Anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. This is the confidence Paul has. This is what gives any of us who believe in Jesus confidence. If we've died with him, we will live with him and we'll live a transformed life now, clear about what that one thing is that we do, what we're focused on, and make a difference in this life and a difference in the next. So Paul says, going back to Philippians, this is what he wanted. He wanted to know Christ. It's a relationship. He wanted to be found in Christ. And he wanted, in verse 10, to know the power of his resurrection, his resurrection power, his transformed life power. That's what he wanted to experience. And participation in his sufferings. He wanted the life of Christ. He didn't just want, like, Christmas presents from Jesus. He wanted the life of Christ. He didn't want just nice stuff. He wanted that life because it's the only life that's worth living. 
It's the life we were all designed for. A life of suffering and resurrection power. That's what you and I were born for. It's why Jesus has tried to get all of our attention. To give us a suffering, resurrection, meaningful, powerful, meaningful life. It's what Paul understood. It's what he wanted. And so he goes on in verse 12 to say, I haven't obtained all this. As in, don't get the impression I think I've arrived. Hopefully as Christians, uh, as we get older, we become more mature. Uh, Maturity is uh, on offer, uh, but it's never guaranteed, right? You can put in the years and the mileage, but it doesn't guarantee maturity, but it's on offer. And prayerfully we mature, but we never arrive. None of us. doesn't matter how long you've been in Christ. And the good thing about that, there's a a good thing and a challenge. The good thing about that is the Christian life never needs to become dull, uh, repetitive, um, predictable. Uh, It can remain adventurous because the big adventure in life is growth, is depth, is maturity. And there's always plenty more for you and I to grow into. The challenge that comes with that is to remain humble about one's need to grow. And sometimes with age comes some arrogance because at least we have figured out a few things in life. Uh, I know I haven't figured it all out, but I have figured out a few more things now than when I was 30. At least I like to think so. But in terms of in Christ, the humility still got to be there to say, I I know I haven't arrived. And if Paul could say, I haven't arrived, who are any of us to say, "Uh, I'm done growing. I think I've got enough. No, there's more for us. We've never arrived. So he says, I press on. I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I'm forgetting what's behind, straining towards what's ahead. So let's think about this a little bit. How do we grow? How do we grow? Some of this is about forgetting and some of it is about pressing on. He says, I forget what's behind. That doesn't mean literally, I think, forget and have a blank blank mind about something. But I think what he's saying is, my past isn't holding me back from pressing forward. And the two things we have to deal with in terms of our past is failure and victory. Both of those can stop us from pressing on. Failure, sins, mistakes, regrets, these things if they dominate our present thinking, stop us from seeing Christ. When our minds or our eyes are so full of ourselves, really, in whatever sense, and in this sense failure, then we can't see Christ. And the motivation to become like him is diminished because we can't even see him. And if you can't see him, you can't see how wonderful he is, and then you don't want to be more like him because you can't see it. So we've got to be We've got to be forgiven for our sins, and we need to make sure we've been forgiven. We need to make sure we've obeyed what the Bible teaches for that. But then if that has been the case, then we've got to lay our failures at the feet of Jesus and trust that he's able to handle them and that we don't have to be defined by the mistakes we've made. And the same thing is true of our victories. With failure, we can be trapped by guilt. With victories, we can be trapped by pride. I've done this for God. I've done that for God. I could give you a nice CV. You know my CV? And then we start writing a bit like Paul was writing earlier on. And we forget God isn't impressed with a CV. Or more importantly, he doesn't need a CV. He loves us. 
And he loves us too much to let us just be stuck with where we are. Part of our responsibility is to recognize what keeps us stuck and deal with that with God. Deal with our guilt and deal with our pride, deal with our failures and deal with our victories and lay them on one side and say, well, that was yesterday. Well, this is today and I want to go forward with Christ. <laughs> is there anything holding you back? Holding you back from just, I want more of Christ. Because in the end, the one thing Paul wants, <laughs> the one thing he wants is not to plant more churches, though he did that. The one thing he wants is not to train up more Timothys, though he did a lot of that. The one thing he wants is not to raise up more elders, though he did that and did a lot more of it, as far as we can see in the scriptures. The one thing was not to go to new territories, though he did do that. The one thing Paul wanted, the one thing he did, was to press on to more Christ-likeness. This is it. And this passage is often used to proclaim that we should have spiritual ambition to go out and do great things for God. And that's not wrong, but what that comes from is for the, from that one thing that Paul wanted is, I want more of Christ. And this is the way it's meant to work, my friends, right? We're not meant to say, right, we don't have enough vision and ambition, let's go and do something for God. We're meant to say, I need more of Christ, because if I get more of Christ, then this will happen. God will do more through me. I will be more available to God. I will find that spiritual energy that is needed. That, it comes from wanting more of Christ. Now, the one thing he wanted was to press on into Christ's likeness. And that's, it's, it's subtle, but it's really important. And it's not something you can, there's no formula for it. There's no three-step plan practical things do help us, but it's not like you can boil it down to, you might find praying through the Beatitudes helpful. You might find meditating on the Sermon on the Mount helpful. You might find praying through Psalm 23. You might find reading the scriptures slowly. You might find doing a theology course helpful. You might find reading certain books, talking to certain people, trying certain ways of serving God to stretch your faith. All these things are good, but there's no one thing there. But, but the one thing that drives our our ambition to, to grow and to, uh, to press on and to strain forward and forget what's behind. The one thing is to know more of Christ, to have more of him. And that fuels everything else. And maybe it's worth us talking in our fellowship times about how, how we can press on more into Christ. What does that actually mean? How, what's helpful to you? What have you found helpful in the past that's helped you to grow more into Christ? And if those things were helpful, then could they be helpful now? And the things that you found helpful might be different from mine. And then, oh, oh I, haven't, I haven't tried that. I, I haven't thought about that. I think those could be really fruitful conversations. Tell me what's helped you in the past to press on into more of Christ. I think that's why Paul's writing this, to help them. It does mean forgetting. It does mean straining on, as he says, straining here, stretching uh, ourselves, stretching ourselves. Um, I don't like stretching. I find it really rather painful. Even though the physiotherapists, when you stretch, they say, oh, don't do it if it hurts. But it, it all hurts. That's, that's, that's the problem. Um, <laughs> I've had a few more uh, aches and pains recently on my shoulder in particular, and I went to the physio and he gave me all these exercises to do. And uh, I, I decided also I should try, <laughs> I should try some yoga. And Come on. oh man, I mean I'm 61. I never done any yoga, and uh, I'm watching these people on YouTube pull their bodies into positions that surely 
that must be photoshopped. <laughs> There's no way someone could bend their leg around like that, and, and that's just not possible. And it's very, uh, it's very annoying that they can do it, that I can barely move. And uh, I'm doing it last thing at night, as a, also as a wind down thing before going to bed. And uh, it's actually, it's kind of helpful, but I'm really glad there are no cameras. Um, <laughs> I feel like a, a, an idiot. Uh, completely outside my comfort zone, um, and uh, it's just one of those. It's it's reminding me, that, but that's that's how I heal, that's how I grow, that's how I'm more able to be all that I'm meant to be for God, for my body. It takes us. It has to. We have to step outside what is easy, what is comfortable, what is can uh, what we're used to. Uh, may I challenge myself and all of us to do some um, spiritual yoga or, or some Christian, I don't know, you know what I mean, right? Stretch yourself. What, what would stretch you in being more like Christ, growing into Christ-likeness? What would it be? Pressing onto the goal. What is the goal? These two passages, I think, spell it out. What is the goal Paul is looking for here? The goal to win the prize which God had called me heavenward in Christ Jesus he called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Share in Christ's glory. Participate in it. Be, let it be your experience. Of those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What does that mean? A lot of us would say, well, that's when I get to heaven. I would say, no, what's the point of writing this to people who are going to live life? No, Christ lives. He's not, we're not going to join him in a new life that we don't already participate in. We are now participating in his resurrected life. He still lives. Yes, in the heavenlies, but he lives and our lives are in him. So we are living in the glory of Christ now. Now, more fully revealed in the next life, in the next age, yes. But this is, we, we inhabit it now. So what Paul is saying is, I want more of the glory of Christ in my life now. More of his suffering, more of his resurrection power that can be my experience and that can make a difference to, to the world. People will see. People will notice. People will get hope because of what they see. And that's what gives Paul such vision. He's experiencing the glory of Christ and he wants more of it. More, please. Second helpings. Thirds, I'll come back for fourths. As much as you can heap on my plate. I'm never not going to be hungry for this. This is Paul. With that, I'll conclude with a question. What's your vision for what God will do here? What's your vision if we seek this one thing, if we want this one thing, this greater Christ-likeness personally, and congregationally, what could God do? Not so much what do we want personally, more what could God do? Paul did live a very adventurous and ambitious life. Let's put it that way, right? I mean, to say it mildly. But it came from a deep well of desiring Christ and his glory. And when I say what could God do through us here, I don't just mean the building, of course. I'm talking about our lives Wherever we live, wherever we work, whoever we are around, what's our vision for what God can do? Your part in it, not just, yes, we ought to do this and that, 
but you're part of it. Having vision conversations with God, with one another. What does God want and how can we cooperate with him? One thing I do. The one thing Paul did, straining on, pressing on to win the goal, to the, toward the goal, to win the prize, to share in the glory of Christ. One thing. We're going to take communion in just a moment here. And maybe this is the verse to meditate on for a moment. There's all of Paul's ambition, all of his hopes, all of his zeal came down to this, that Christ suffered for him and was raised. That suffering was willing, willing on the part of Jesus and that resurrection was a demonstration that sin no longer has any power over us. Our sins and failures of the past do not have any more power than we allow them to have. They have no power according to Christ. And whether those sins are sinful mistakes or whether they are the sins of pride over victories, those things do not hold us back if we will not allow them to. Those have been dealt with by Christ. And instead we now live in resurrection power. Transformed life. If you think about it, although I consider Paul perhaps to be the most ambitious human recorded in the New Testament, actually the most ambitious person that ever lived, of course, was Jesus Christ. And of course he didn't have the sort of ambition that perhaps a, uh, I don't know, someone in business might have or somebody in politics might have or somebody in the arts might have. It wasn't that kind of ambition. It was a very different, selfless ambition. But he was the most ambitious person that ever lived. He wanted the whole world to come to know God. You and I, if we're in Christ, we share in the same ambition. Enabled by his death and by his resurrection. So I hope I've given us some things to think about today that are useful. One thing I do, one thing, let's refresh our hearts and our thinking about what we really want from God and from this life.